Welcome to the Boomer Woman's Podcast. I'm your host, Agnes Knowles. Boomer. Some people don't like the term, but I think, like many other words, it's all in how you say it. My umbrella business is Boom with a Bang, and I think we should keep that in mind as much as possible. We Boomer women don't have a lot of role models as we traverse this chapter. So the goal of this podcast is to introduce you to guests who might incentivize, encourage, teach you to embrace your wisdom, our wisdom. With this incarnation of the Boomer Woman's Podcast, I'm interviewing people who have a message of interest for our demographic. If you want to hear about or learn about something specific, let me know and I'll find someone who understands us to talk about it. There's a contact page at boomwithabang.com. If you want to be a guest on podcast or know someone who would be a great guest, message me. Finally, this show is all about conversation. We women know its value, we know how to do it, and we must perpetuate the art form. So let's get started with today's show. Welcome to the Boomer Woman's Podcast. I'm your host, Agnes Knowles. I've said for years that one day I'll write the great Canadian novel. I'd suggest that after today I'll be well prepared, but I know that would sell the process and my guest short. But if I've done my podcaster job well, we'll at least have some tips and insights about writing and publishing that book by the time we sign off here today. Here's a piece of my guest's bio. Alexa has worked with over 100 authors in the United States, Canada, Europe and Australia, and has experience in all genres, including nonfiction, memoir, fiction, children's books, coloring books, and journals. Alexa Nazaro, welcome to the Boomer Woman's Podcast. Thank you so much for having me, Agnes. Alexa, let's start at the beginning. You know, you graduated from Concordia in creative writing. Uh, You now have this amazing author services agency and a hybrid publishing house. What was the process between those two events? Well, so I studied creative writing because I always tell people at ultimately at the root of my being, I am a writer first and foremost. So I've always enjoyed writing and I I loved my time in university, just working with fellow writers, workshopping pieces. It truly was just an amazing experience. I still think about those years. They were just fabulous. And When I graduated, of course, I was looking for ways to start my own business. I was working on my own writing on the side, but ultimately I also just wanted to build a business that was solid and that was going to provide income, obviously. And so I started out in business communications and I was doing a lot of copywriting. So website copy and, you know, white paper copy and all of those things. And then one day I came across an a client who also had written this ebook And it was essentially a glorified business card. She was trying to launch a business as a consultant in real estate investment. And she said, Alexa, I have this ebook, you know, can can you help me put this up? And I really enjoyed the process with her. And it just, a little light came off. And I said, wow, I think I can work with other authors. And I just, it's weird. It's just one of those things where once I sort of put it out there, I started coming across authors and authors coming to me saying, I also have a book and I also want to publish. And so gradually I moved more and more away from the business communications. And now I pretty much exclusively work with authors. And that's how that all came around. So yep, that's been my journey. 
<laughs> that sounds pretty serendipitous. That's great. <laughs> it's nice when life unfolds like that. Oh, it definitely, it really is. And it's just, it's, it's a really nice collaboration. So obviously, you know, authors are our clients, they're my clients, but there's really, it's truly a creative collaboration from beginning to end. There's a vulnerability that is there when authors come to us with their manuscripts. Very often, only their spouse or their partner has seen these manuscripts. Sometimes nobody has. And so they're taking that leap. They're placing their faith and their trust in you. And then together you chip away and you turn that manuscript into a beautiful book. And it's it's a really, really rewarding experience from beginning to end. Oh, it sounds great. Okay. <laughs> now, I'm going to hang up here in the, when we're finished and go, go start my book. There you go. Now, do you still write? I do still write. It's one of these challenges where I sometimes, I'm sometimes joke to my husband, you know, maybe I should make Alexa one of my own clients and then her own work will advance because it's, I have young children. It's, it's a common story. We hear, you know, just that struggle for balance between business parent, you know, parenting and also our own passion. So yes, I'm very close to finishing um, a young adult novel. I had actually already written and published a young adult novel just before my son was born. So that was a huge lesson for me in timing. This is something I brought to my clients is don't launch a book about four to six weeks before your child is born because book marketing will very quickly take a backseat. So now what I've done is I've written a follow-up to that book. So my plan in the next year is to launch the second book and to relaunch the first book. Because that's what's nice about publishing yourself is you really have that creative liberty. And that's what's fun about that. So yes, I do still write. Oh, good, good. <laughs> Sometimes you get so caught up in other people's process. Oh my gosh, that, uh, definitely, definitely. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> okay. How do you write a good book? Oh, my gosh. Well, I, I think the very first thing is you have to be driven by passion. So I do come across some authors who feel they need to write a book. This is primarily nonfiction, I would say. If someone's a life coach, if someone is a consultant, they feel and they're being told by all the gurus out there, you need a book, you need a book. And it's certainly not bad advice, but by the same token, as I'm sure you know too, Agnes, from life experience, if you force something, it just becomes painful and it's not fun. And writing a book should ultimately be fun because it's a creative process. So the first thing I would say is write a book if you genuinely want to write a book. And the second thing is be driven by the passion for actually writing the book and not driven by eventual sales. There are still, I still come across plenty of authors who maybe take their work a little too seriously because the fact of the matter is there are so many books coming out every day, every week, every month that ultimately your very first priority should be striving to make the manuscript the best it can be. So try to, you know, drown out, you know, close yourself off to all the noise, all the gurus, all the consultants and experts, and just sit down and write. So that would be, those are definitely good starting points and just get that first draft done. So many times I have authors who, you know, they're at chapter one, but now before they move on to chapter two, they're just going to go back to the beginning of chapter one and start revising. You will never get to the end, or it will take you a lot longer to get to the end of that first draft. Because the fact of the matter is the first draft is rarely going to be your final. It really shouldn't be your final draft. So let go of perfection. 
because perfection can be the enemy of done. You know, that's what I like to say. You want to get done. So just go through that first manuscript, let go of all those obsessions with perfection and just get it done. So that would be, that would be another really important piece of advice. And don't underestimate editors and having a fresh pair of eyes reviewing your manuscript. And that shouldn't be someone who's so close to you that they wouldn't want to be necessarily honest. Sometimes it's, I I do, I know authors, sometimes, you know, you come with a budget in mind and, and I totally get that. But I don't know, I'm almost tempted to say if there are, if there's one thing you don't want to cut corners on is editing. And another one I would say is book cover design. I'm getting a bit ahead of myself, but do not underestimate the importance of a good editor, someone who doesn't have any loyalties to you, their loyalties to the integrity of the written word. And they're going to, their commitment is to make your book the best it can be. So that's really, really important. So definitely get an editor. And it sounds like, it's funny, I think I was underestimating the power of the editor, but it sounds like a professional editor is much better than your best friend or your spouse. Yes, because ultimately, even if your spouse, let's say, unless your spouse or your partner or your sister or brother is really a professional editor, they are still going to be biased, even despite their best intentions to be objective and to give you really useful feedback. You want the useful feedback. I mean, you don't necessarily want someone coming across like like a Simon Powell, you know, who's just going to hit the buzzer and say, no, not any good. But you still want to get substantial feedback and someone simply telling you, this is really cute or this is so nice and it's so good you're doing this. That's not really helpful. So yes, an editor is really, really important. But recognize that there are different types of edits. This is something a lot of people might not realize. So editing for them might be a bit of proofreading, a bit of developmental and copy editing all rolled into one. But they are there are really different types of edits and each one serves its own purpose. So a developmental edit is really bringing a, a microscope to the content itself. For fiction, are your characters properly developed? Is your dialogue engaging enough? Is your plot is your plot and your pacing, are those tight? Are those well executed? Setting all of those elements for a good work of fiction, that is the focus of a developmental edit. And for nonfiction, of course, we're looking primarily at how content is organized, how you introduce examples. Do you back up some of your statements or theories with other research and, and whatnot? So it's really content. That is one phase of editing. Then you've got a copy edit. A copy edit looks at really, you know, things like sentence structure, transitions. Are, are there certain words that you tend to overuse? Are there certain words that you will use as a crutch? But it's not developmental. You see, at the, at the developmental stage, we're really looking at the content. And I, I do not recommend, make, you know, bundling two forms of edit into one round. I see sometimes authors doing this where they'll say, yes, yeah, some, you know, I got some developmental and they also proofread along the way. But you probably got some really important feedback that implies significant changes to content, rendering the proofread at least partially moot at this stage of the game. You really only want to do proofread when you're at the end, when you feel I've got a good manuscript, it's sound, the content is good, my characters are well-developed and whatnot. And now it's just the T's and dot the I's. So it's really important to keep that in mind. So as you were saying that, I was thinking if I'm writing historical nonfiction, mm -hmm. would I need 
a different editor than if I'm writing a youth novel like you did, young adult? Yes, I, I think certainly, I mean, there are some editors who, you know, that are more versatile than others. So when you go and you look at editor uh, resumes and CVs, you will see they they tend to really mention the genre that they work mostly in. And I think that is important, especially for something as specialized as historical nonfiction that requires a particular expertise that probably fewer editors have. Uh, I've run in, I've met editors who will only edit fiction. I've run in, I, I have editors who will only do nonfiction. So yes, that's definitely an extra step in the research and selection process of your editor. You want to make sure that your editor feels comfortable in your genre. And to be honest with you, a professional editor will always be transparent. They should tell you, look, this manuscript looks really interesting, but this is just not my area of expertise. And very often they they will be able to refer you to an editor who will be better qualified for your book or your manuscript. Right. Now you had a talking point on your bio. What are the biggest mistakes that fiction writers make? Yeah. But <laughs> when it comes to author mistakes, you know, is fiction a, a more treacherous path or are there mistakes that all authors might make? I would say in some ways, fiction is really much more art than science. So definitely I would say, <laughs> and it's interesting because I work with authors who sometimes come from a background where they've had to write a lot of research papers or they've written nonfiction work related to their area of expertise. And somehow there's this illusion, I would dare call it, that, oh, you know, I got published by so-and-so press. I'm just going to write this cute little novella. And they don't realize just all those elements, the anatomy of a really good story. It's pretty complex. So I would say as far as what are the biggest mistakes or the pitfalls that fiction authors fall into, probably one of the ones I see the most is information dumps. I call these information dumps because very often an, an author is struggling with, okay, let's, let's look at the scene at hand, but I also have to inform the reader of a lot of backstory that they need to know in this moment to appreciate this particular scene. And so you'll start with something like somebody's walking into a home and the reader's thinking, okay, well, where is this person going? And then that's followed by sometimes two pages of just an information dump where we are given this person's bio, where they come from, where they grew up, their, their marriage, their children, all of their struggles. And in the meantime, the reader has completely forgotten where did we open with? You never want a reader to feel, oh, but I was really interested in the follow-up to that. Why do I have to now read this information dump? Not to mention, it's really not interesting to read an information dump because suddenly a reader is forced to process all this information, which can be very cumbersome when you're just sitting back and wanting to lose yourself into a story. So of course, I find writers struggle with that a lot. How do I give readers the information while still telling the story. And, and the, the thing is, the real answer to that is weaving in just enough at the right moment. So just you don't want to have, if you find yourself having more than a paragraph of backstory, chances are you are giving an information dump. So that is a big, big struggle that is really not an easy one to navigate, but it's probably one of the most common ones. And I would also say, 
writing dialogue that is engaging. So what I always like to tell authors is dialogue has to feel and sound like everyday language, only enhanced, only better. So sometimes what author what authors will do, writers will do is they will use dialogue as an opportunity to give information dumps because people don't normally talk in, in mini speeches. They don't normally do that. And sometimes, and, and I, can, I can see this from a mile away. Okay, so this is essentially not really dialogue. This is almost more like a monologue directed to the reader because real people don't speak that way. So I would say trying to write realistic yet engaging dialogue, that's also a challenge. I'm thinking there's two sides to this conversation because if if somebody's having a conversation with a friend and yes. they are doing the great monologue, yes. it's like maybe you need to think about your, you know, your conversational skills. Yes, exactly. But there's certainly nothing wrong with every once in a while if it's an in- if it's intentional, if a character is suddenly diving into a story then that makes sense. Although think about conversations you'll have with friends, even if they're telling you this grandiose story, there probably are going to be a few interruptions now and then. And so you you want to keep that in mind. I'm sorry, somebody who shall remain nameless is coming to mind because okay. every, everybody laughs and says, okay, then they finally got to the, the point of the story. <laughs> yeah, yeah, there so, you go. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. just just bear that in mind. Just make dialogue engaging and avoid information dumps. Those are the two most critical things. Both on the page and in real life. There you go. Very true. Very true. (laughs) Ah, dear. Okay, let's move from writing to publishing. Mm -hmm. Agent or publish oneself? Right. So that is always the question. Traditional versus indie publishing, as we say in the industry. One of the things that I always tell writers is I I am personally very pro-indie publishing, not just because I have a business that caters to indie authors, but I just feel there are simply so many advantages to publishing on your own. That being said, I also know being in this industry that not everybody is suited to be an independent author. And there are plenty of writers who want that badge of acceptance. They want that stamp of approval. I got accepted by an agent. I My manuscript was accepted by a traditional publisher, a traditional press, and, and, I, and I respect that. I think one of the things that just needs to be recognized is that it's really, it's just getting harder and harder to get traditionally published. And that's not just something that people in the industry, like my peers are saying to get more business. It's just the reality. I was working with a writer a few years ago and she was working on this manuscript. She sent it to an agent, a New York agent, no less. And the agent liked it, but they felt that it just needed to be about 35,000 words more. She went back. She was so excited and so encouraged. She, and, and of course, I mean, as any writer knows, once you feel your manuscript is done, to suddenly have to go back into an ad like 30,000 extra words. That's that's not an easy task, but she did it. She sent it back and the agent said it's much better, but I'm ju- I just can't take it at this time. So getting an agent is really not easy. And that's just one step in the process because now it's the agent's task to go and shop around your manuscript and find a publisher. So the process can really be, you need to be ready to invest the time 
and have the patience if you want to go the traditional route. So it certainly doesn't mean it can't happen. I don't want to be one of these naysayers, but it's just it's important to be aware of what you're going into. By the same token, if you want to go the indie route, you also you equally have to be aware of what you're going into. And if you are going to be an indie author, there's definitely an entrepreneurial element to that journey that you have to be ready to embrace. And if you're not the type of person who, for lack of a better word, if you're not a hustler, if that's not your personality, that's okay. But maybe being an indie author will just be frustrating for you and it won't feel natural. And nobody likes to be in a role that doesn't feel authentic to them. So I always, I would much rather not have an author who is not ready to be an indie author, I really would much rather that that collaboration not start, not because I don't want to work with them, but just because if they're not ready to embrace the whole indie author identity and journey, they're not going to enjoy it. And it's really important that the journey be enjoyable. Otherwise, why go through it? Right. So, so two thoughts come to mind there is, first of all, I'll never remember who it was, but a, a published author mm-hmm. who chose with the second book or third book or whatever to go the indie route mm-hmm. because they said it, it's going to take years to get this published. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Yes. Oh, yeah. no. Well, that's a whole other thing. I mean, as an indie author, if you have a manuscript and you feel you have an audience and you want to get this book to print, you don't have to wait two, three years. I mean, on average, authors, this is a common question authors have for me is so how long, let's assume my manuscript is edited, Alexa. So when can we see that book up on Amazon? Because nowadays being on Amazon is pretty much synonymous with being published. And we generally work with about a three-month timeline, a three to four-month timeline. And of course, we can always expedite things a little bit, but we're not comfortable doing that if we're going to compromise on quality of the product. But All of that to say things can happen quicker, but you can also, there's also more flexibility. Like I was just saying, if you published a book and then you had a son and suddenly you just have to cater to this baby, well, that's okay. You can always revive that book two, three, four years later. You're not going to have a publisher say, well, no, no, that's on your backlist now. Let's get started on the new book. You don't have those constraints. You really have full liberty but again, with that liberty also comes responsibility. And and which actually leads me to an important point is I have also spoken to authors who are traditionally published, but because they're not big names, they're not actually getting the degree of support and the degree of backing that they were expecting because it's just this vicious circle. I mean, publishers, they are businesses. They have to look at the bottom line. So they want to put all of their money and their time into the authors that are a sure thing that will guarantee them sales. Of course, the flip side to that is, well, what if you have a really good author who can get to that level, but how are they ever going to get there if you don't give them that backing? So it's always that same vicious circle, catch 22. But it is something to be aware of that there are plenty of traditionally published authors who perhaps were published by a smaller press or perhaps even by a bigger press, but they're not getting that support. So it's just really important to be fully aware of the implications of both journeys, the traditional and the independent. Well, and you mentioned that, you know, to to be an independent, you need to have that entrepreneurial spirit and the drive and everything else. Mm -hmm. 
maybe it's a reflection of my personality, but I can't imagine maintaining that for three years yes. on the same project. Right. Right. Or, yeah, absolutely. I mean, and it's just so important to know yourself. And every time I speak to an author who appears a little bit on the fence, I'm very transparent and I'm, I'm really honest with them. And I'll tell them, I really recommend take some more time, think about it, and then come back. If you've decided that this really is what you want to do, you're going to have a ton of fun, but you need to start with that mindset. If you start always with that little seed of doubt, oh, maybe I can still, because I've worked with an author who sort of kept a foot in each camp, like, okay, I'm going to do this, but I'm still going to shop it around to agents. It, it really becomes difficult because you're not you're not investing 100% of yourself in the traditional or in the indie. So it's just, you just end up remaining stagnant, really. So I really recommend, be honest, take inventory of your personality, of your goals. And, uh, and, and also by the same token, don't be too hard on yourself if you're going the independent route. Because as I mentioned earlier, you're not the only one. You need to have patience. You need to have stamina and you need to have consistency because unless you have 10,000 people who are guaranteed to buy your book the opening week, it's going to, you have to be in it for the long haul and you, it's, it's not about instant gratification and that's really important. Hmm. Okay. So just to go back to agents for a moment, mm -hmm. um, and this is my own naivety here, are, are agents independent or are they affiliated with the big publishing houses? So they are not really directly affiliated with big publishing houses, but the nice thing about having a good agent is they have the contacts. So all of those little images of agents taking publishers out to lunch in New York City, those things do happen. It's all about the type of agent you have. Okay. And if you have a good one who's motivated to sell your manuscript, they will, they're not employed by a publisher, but they will definitely know whom to call. They will know. I know for a fact that this publisher is looking for something like this. So there's, this is not in any way to undermine agents and their valuable role, especially on the traditional landscape, for sure. You hear about authors publishing themselves. Does that yeah. mean they've actually gone with an indie or can people actually publish themselves? <laughs> So this is this you open up a really interesting subject because I find the word publishing nowadays has just it just comes to mean so many different things. Mm -hmm. People call their publisher somebody who is in fact more like us, an author services agency. So we, for instance, we always make it very clear to our authors that we are not your publisher. Everything we do is in your name, which means you have complete control over cover design. You can veto something if you don't like it. We are not, because in the traditional world, that's not the case. I mean, it's it's not uncommon for publishers to say, we like your manuscript, but we're going to change the title. And we think the main character should be this. But that doesn't happen with us. I mean, authors are really, we always like to tell authors we want you to have the best self-publishing experience, but you're doing it with the support of a team of experts, but you remain the publisher. There are outfits like us, which are also pay-for-service models, but they will actually still publish the author and as a result also have a claim to a certain percentage of royalties. So there as an author, you're kind of self-published because you have paid for the services, and yet you're still somehow bound to this company 
that also has a claim on royalty. So these are actually the models that we recommend authors stay away from because if you've paid in full for services to get your book published, you really are entitled to full royalties of any sales unless this publishing partner is actually investing some way in your book if they're offering any kind of marketing initiatives that they're not asking for payment for if they're if if they're really putting personnel and serious effort towards increasing awareness for your book and visibility but then if that's the case we're falling more into what is called hybrid publishing so hybrid publishing tends to be really more of a partnership so you've got an author who is expected to invest somewhat in the publication of their book this is usually the typical model but by the same token you also have a publisher who either also invests in the publishing of the book and by publishing i mean i mean a book it it requires an investment you're investing in cover design you're investing in 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 the production of the book you're investing in marketing so if your publishing partner is investing somehow they're bringing something to the table then that is definitely more of what I call a hybrid model. And in that case, your publishing partner or your publisher is indeed and would be entitled to some kind of royalties as a reward for their investment. So hybrid to me is legitimate. A strictly fee-for-service business model is legitimate, like what we offer our authors, where we are hired to do a specific set of tasks whether it's a complete turnkey service or if they just want us to do a cover design, but at the end of the day, they are the publisher and they have full access to all of their book files. They get full access to their royalties and all of those other elements. So yes, so it's really careful. So when I hear authors say, so I have this publisher, I always want to dig a little deeper. What exactly is the nature of the relationship? Because it's, it's not about, I'm not trying to suggest that my peers are misleading, but there are definitely people who are misleading in this industry because it's an industry that is largely built on people's dreams. And when people have a dream, they are vulnerable. They just want to hear the next best thing. Oh, there's going to, I've been selected to enter this contest. I can get my book turned into a Netflix series. And you're hearing there's so much noise that it's easy to fall prey to those promises that that are almost and tend to literally be too good to be true. So you have to be vigilant. I, I'm glad you covered that hybrid thing because that was I have a question later on of what does hybrid mean. So so thank you for doing that. Now, if if somebody does go that hybrid route, and I I don't know if this is an easy question or one that I should be asking, what sort of percentage does does the publishing house get? That really, really depends. So I'm okay. not, that's not something that I'm comfortable answering just because I don't want to mislead anyone. I think it really, really depends. And one of the biggest factors is also what is the publisher bringing to the table? Because the more they are contributing, the more they should also be earning. Because after all, if they're not asking for much of an investment, there needs to be a payoff for them in the end. So I would say every hybrid contract is unique and and i think it's safer to keep it at that honestly yeah. it sounds like it's negotiable then yes it's certainly negotiable it can be negotiable again depending on the hybrid press so i don't want to speak on yeah, behalf yeah. of you know <laughs> yeah exactly okay no that's great you talk about avoiding vanity press scams start right. by telling us what what is a vanity press okay so 
basically what I just talked about when I was talking about publishers who will publish your book. So maybe I should give a little overview. If you're a truly self-published author, the way most authors publish nowadays is they use print-on-demand models. So if you've been doing any research, flirting at all with self-publishing, you've heard of platforms like Ingram Spark. You've heard of platforms like Kindle Direct Publishing. These are platforms where you set your book up digitally, so there are no copies being stored anywhere. It's all digital. And when your book is demanded, i.e. purchased, then that platform, that whatever platform is being used to distribute that, to fulfill that order, prints the book and ships it to the, to the purchaser. So that is, that's, what's really important. So with us as an, as an author working with us, all of those accounts set up on all these platforms, they are all set up in our, in the author's name. And that's a critical, critical distinction that needs to be made because if an author has access to their own print on demand accounts with all these platforms, well, they have all that control. They can go in if they want to change their retail price, they can go in and do that. If they want to access sales reports, they have access to them. Any royalties that are being remitted are being remitted to them alone. If you're working with an outfit like somewhat like us, where they are still charging the author fees for publishing the book. So the author is investing hundreds, thousands of dollars uh, in, into publishing their book, but they don't have any of that control. That to me is, is a little bit of a scam if the publisher in question is not contributing at all to the author's book's success. So that, in my view, it does start becoming a bit of a scam because we will have authors come to us saying, I published through so-and-so, I haven't received royalties for the last year, I'm trying to reach them, I can't. These are the unfortunate stories that do happen, and we speak to authors all the time who have been a victim, unfortunately, of these situations. So I would quite confidently call that a scam just because you're not really being the publisher for this author. You have taken money from this author and the author has very little to show for all of that in the end. So that is that it's really important if you're doing this, you either go hybrid, but it's clear in your mind what the publisher is bringing to the table and the contract is very clear, or you do it completely yourself and you, you hire the assistance of an outfit like Axel Author Services. In all fairness, though, there are plenty of authors who decide I'm going to do it all myself. I'm going to find my cover designer. I'm going to find my typesetter, my ebook formatter. I'm going to find my graphic artist to do my author branding or my website. And in all fairness, you can do all of that yourself. So I don't want to mislead authors into thinking they need someone like us. To me, there are clear advantages of hiring an outfit like ours because we have the expertise, we have the designers, we have the editors, and you can literally go along ahead with the rest of your life knowing that your book is being taken care of. But for an author who really enjoys the process of really being involved, then of course you can find all of those resources on your own. Just don't attempt to do things on your own that you've never done. So I always kind of cringe when I, I belong to a lot of Facebook groups and you'll hear a lot of, you know, you'll read a lot of discussions and 
I always cringe when I hear somebody say, oh, you don't need to hire a website designer. Just use Wix or use WordPress and, and Squarespace. And it's really, really easy. You can just drag and drop and make your own website. Yes, but ultimately it's never going to look as good as somebody who really knows what they're doing. So it's so critical. Like there's no reason to have a poor cover design anymore. This isn't the 1990s. You, there's no reason to have a subpar cover. And it's so critical. I said earlier, editing is not something to cut corners on and cover design is definitely not something to cut. You don't want your cover to look like it was a Microsoft Word document with an image in the middle and a very familiar Times New Roman font. I still see some of these and it's just, it's shocking to me that these still occur, that these still are created, but don't cut corners on cover design. So you don't want me to use Comic Sans anymore? <laughs> <laughs> oh my god well you know it, it's got a lot of character but there no. are so many fonts out there and I still sometimes see that really look like you know like it was a Microsoft Word document where you just have this image in the middle and you've got the title and the author and it's just none of it looks creative there's no excuse for one of those yeah yeah I have a number of websites and I can't tell you how how long I sometimes spend on Google fonts Oh, isn't Trying it? To get the, it's the so feel amazing. Of it. It's got to oh. be the right font. Oh, yeah. there are yeah. so many fonts. It can indeed be such a rabbit hole, but it's so fun to look at different fonts. Anyways, a real graphic designer really appreciates typography and typography is important too. Right, right. Yeah. <laughs> uh, dear, just as an aside, I know a number of times, I mean, not a lot, but there's been a number of times that somebody that, that I follow online I'm on their mailing list or in their Facebook group, and they will actually put out, you know, which which title is more would grab you more, yeah. which which cover design do you like yes. the best? Yes. Um, and it sounds like that's probably a good idea. I mean, if you've got thousands of people in your group, you're going to get a fairly good. Do you know, it's it's interesting because every time I work on a cover or we work on covers with our authors, we always tell them they get a proposal at the beginning with three different concepts because it's all about customization. So we just want our authors to feel like, oh, I'm seeing a number of different possibilities where my cover could go artistically. And we tell them, sit with it for a little bit, show it to a few trusted people, but just be wary because the more people you ask, the, the larger, the variety, the wider range of feedback you will get. And sometimes you can really be at a loss. So I think it's important. I don't know about asking 10,000 people on your <laughs> mailing list what they think. I can just imagine because people love giving their feedback too. They love giving their opinion and all of a sudden you're being inundated. So I'm actually more leaning. I'm more in the school of thought of, you know what? Ask a few select people, people who understand your work. They understand your target market. Definitely don't, don't be insular about it. I mean, ask other people. But another little add-on piece, another piece of advice is once you've decided, don't ask. Don't, don't keep asking people. This is it. You've decided. You're good with that decision. Stick with it. Right, right. I, it's interesting, too, that you know, you, you were talking about ask a few people that know you, know your subject matter, trust you, you trust or whatever. And that makes so much sense. But part of me when I was asking the question was thinking, well, you know, like if, if you ask a 1000 people and 600 of them choose one, is yeah. that, 
indicative of your potential audience and that particular cover would win. Yes, I I would say that if if it's that clean, the feedback, if it's that easy and clear, then absolutely that type of feedback certainly is, is, it can be very insightful. So I'm not in any way diminishing (laughs) that. It's just every time I see people on Facebook, they'll put up two different covers. Which one do you like? And all I see are just a plethora of, you know, I like that, but I would make it a lighter shade of blue in the background. And and suddenly that's just not helpful in my opinion. So, but yes, 600 to 400 for one cover, that can certainly be helpful. <laughs> okay. So, so when I get my 333, 332, and 334, 5, whatever, I can't add there to my you head. Go. Yeah, <laughs> I, I exactly. won't go that route. <laughs> exactly. There you go. There you go. (laughs) Okay. Now you mentioned contracts earlier. You know, I'm just a humble writer. Yeah. How how do I assess a contract? Like, how do I look at that and figure out if it's going to work for me or... So the first things, the things that I would really make sure of, if assuming that you want to really be independent and not bound to anyone... One of the very first things is ISBNs. So if you want to put your book out, every book has an ISBN. It's a unique number. You'll frequently see it on the barcode at the back on the back cover. You want to own those ISBNs. You don't want someone else to own them. So just make sure that it's clearly stipulated that you will have your own ISBNs. Not an ISBN will be assigned to your book because that's a given. But who owns that ISBN? Uh, in Canada right now, ISBNs are are free. Um, so with, that's really a nice bonus in the United States and other countries, you have to purchase them. But when you obtain ISBNs, you always have to stipulate who owns those ISBNs. So if it's the name of your vanity publisher, well, that's already an issue. So if they're a hybrid publisher and they are investing in the book, then that is perfectly legitimate. But if you're paying them thousands of dollars and not really getting anything in return other than a book up on Amazon, you really should be owning those ISBNs. So that's thing number one. The second thing I would look for is the degree of customization. So very often with outfits like ours, there are different package levels. So just make sure that no matter what package you purchase, you are getting a customized cover and not one of these. You can use up to two stock photos and because already that indicates a limitation in in terms of creative liberty and artistry. And you don't want to compromise that way. You want your cover to really look the best it can be. So make sure you get a high degree of customization and royalties. Just make sure that you will get royalties and you will get a hundred percent of those. That's really important. And that you will also get your book files at the end of the process. We, at the end of our process, all our authors, they get all of their book files, any branding we've done for them, any graphic design work that we've done, they get it all so that we're not holding anything hostage. So just make sure that your publishing partner doesn't hold anything hostage. Because I like to use that word for people like us. We're really a publishing partner. We're not the publisher. One thing that just came to my mind was, if, if you're dealing with a hybrid publisher mm-hmm. and they provide the ISBN, mm-hmm. if they go out of business, what happens? Well, if they go out of business, what happens? Well, usually what they might do is they might just revert the rights to you if they're transparent. 
this is the big challenge is you just don't want to find yourself in a situation where suddenly a publisher just doesn't exist. But I will say that if you're going the hybrid route, you want to make sure you're working with somebody reputable. That's really, really important. And it's also important, again, to understand the difference between a hybrid versus a publishing partner. A true hybrid publisher, they are invested in your book. So there should be that degree of professionalism and transparency so that you can regain control of your book should ever that happen. So your book should not just suddenly be lost. You should be able to recuperate that book and those rights. But that's something that has to be verified with the hybrid publisher. But if you're paying upfront for everything, you shouldn't have to chase anyone Unless they're, you just shouldn't. I mean, ethically speaking, if somebody is dipping, is is has access or has a claim on some royalties, it's because they are investing. They're putting resources behind your book. They're putting marketing dollars behind your book. If you're getting that degree of support, then that means you truly have the support of a reputable hybrid press. And there are plenty of them out there. So it's just don't miss, don't uh, don't mix up the uh, the publishing partner scams with the hybrid presses. There are a lot of good ones out there. Good, yeah. Okay, I guess we can't talk books without talking Amazon. All right. Barnes and Noble, I've heard is difficult. I don't know. Talk to us about Amazon and Barnes and Noble, and are there any others? Okay, so what we generally do with our authors is we recommend that they use two publishing platforms. So Kindle Direct Publishing is essentially the self-publishing platform for Amazon marketplaces. So if, you know, for your book to be on amazon.com, amazon.ca, and all of the Amazon marketplaces, we recommend just going direct and using um, Kindle Direct Publishing. For distribution and making your book available through other major book retailers, not just in the United States, but in Canada, Australia, UK, pretty much around the world, we recommend Ingram Spark. So if you use Ingram Spark, your book will be available for purchase on the Barnes and Noble site, on indigo.ca, Waterstone, all those, all those other retailers, their orders will be fulfilled through Ingram Spark. So that's what's kind of nice about using a, a distribute a distribution platform like Ingram Spark. It's kind of that one-stop shop. So you just have that one platform and they handle fulfillment and returns through all those other book retailers other than Amazon. And we also recommend draft to digital for ebook setup on through retailers except Amazon. So use Kindle Direct Publishing for your ebook on Amazon, but for all others, whether it's Kobo or any other major one, use draft to digital because again, you have that one-stop shop concept. That's really interesting. I think <laughs> I may have had an idea about different parts of our conversation so far, but that one is totally, I had seen on your website about uh, Ingram Spark. Mm -hmm. um, and I know I'm one of these people that I avoid Amazon where I can. Right. And if I hear about a book that I want to buy, I go to Barnes and Noble, sure. or I will go to my independent uh, book dealer up the road, my bookstore up the road. Right. But it sounds like it pretty much has to be then through Ingram Spark, does it? It does, except what I always recommend authors, because ultimately every author wants to know, Alexa, is my book going to be stocked in bookstores? And that for many of us, for many of us writers, who wouldn't want to walk into a bookstore and see their book? It's a completely understandable goal, objective, desire, wish. 
what I always recommend authors do is start locally. So you were saying your independent local bookstore. Uh, in my experience, bookstores are very indie author friendly and very welcoming and accommodating. And they'll they'll very often even be happy to, to set up an author book signing event for you. And then in those circumstances, what I recommend is you just set up a consignment agreement directly with the bookstore saying, I will supply you. Usually it's about 10 copies that a bookstore will take will take on. And then there's an assign, a consignment agreement. There's a split in sales. And then after, I don't know, after two, three months, the bookstore might call you up saying, we've got these other two copies here. Do you want to come and recuperate them? Or even better, we've sold all those copies. We'd like to have more. And I always recommend authors, even though these bookstores can always go to Ingram Spark to order, I, I recommend indie authors real fresh out of the gate, really, really try to keep as much control as possible over bookstore sales, because there's also another side to this whole thing called bookstore returns. So bookstores, they like to be able to return unsold stock. Okay. And they can do that through um, through Ingram Spark. Just to reassure authors, of course, you can always stipulate that you do not accept returns. But the problem is, if you don't accept returns, bookstores will be more reluctant to order your book. So almost you're kind of stuck between a rock and a hard place. And a lot of authors ultimately do decide to accept returns, but returns can start getting costly because all of a sudden you're not just having to buy back your books. You're having to cover the costs of shipping them back to Ingram Spark. Then Ingram Spark gives you the option. Do you want these books shipped back to you, which are additional costs? So I always recommend to authors as much as possible, establish nice relationships with local bookstores. You supply the inventory yourself. If, if the returns are needed, you just drive over and pick them up or whatever the case might be. And it's just a way to get your feet wet. And at the same time, it gives you experience dealing with bookstores and learning about them and what they're looking for. And building those relationships are really, it's an invaluable part of the whole indie author journey. But I recommend doing it that way. And so there are ways of getting your book into bookstores that do not require the intervention of Ingram Spark. Ingram Spark comes into play really when suddenly, let's say you're doing a cross-country tour or even a multi-province or a multi-state tour. There's nothing wrong with that. And that's certainly where Ingram Spark can come in handy because in my experience, especially when there comes when we're talking about author events, bookstores like to order through. Ingram because it just it's just logistically for them in terms of their inventory it makes things more seamless it's easier to manage but if you're just starting out with one or two bookstores just say hey I just published this book I'd love to do an event or would you be willing to stock some and you'd be surprised at how many bookstores are happy to to do that that's really good to know. <laughs> yes, absolutely. No, it is. And it's not just small bookstores, even in Canada, Indigo. Oh, I, I've known plenty of independent authors who've had their books on consignment on in Indigo, Barnes and Noble, and, and plenty of other places. It just requires that initiative. And this is where you want to have a book, a nice, proper book uh, that, that looks professional. That is so important. So all those Microsoft Word covers they are not going to cut it because the fact of the matter is there is still a stigma against self-publishing. And that is a challenge that we keep fighting and coming up against, but we just, the solution is to keep, you know, is to keep having nice, proper book covers and, and book design that, 
that these these bookstores can look at and say, oh, this this could have been a traditionally published book. That's what you want to hear. Okay, <laughs> getting uh, all excited here. <laughs> okay, here's here's the question I don't want to ask, but I will. Can we be successful without Amazon? Oh, that speaks volumes. <laughs> I think whether we want to, whether we want to accept it or not, I think a lot of people, when they're thinking about buying a book, most think Amazon. Oh, I'll go to Amazon to look for that book. Even though Amazon offers so many other products, as we all know, it really started out as, as a bookstore, as that online bookstore. And I think it would be a mistake to not have your book available on Amazon. Do I think that this in any way negates all those other avenues I was talking about? I mean, there are plenty of authors. They have, you know, the good old style, you know, books in their trunk and they're driving around to independent bookstores and hosting author events. There are also a lot of authors who, who leverage the whole back of room sales. So they're speakers. They go to conferences, they speak, they make appearances, and there's that table at the back of the room with copies of their book. So there are other avenues, certainly other avenues for selling your book but I think it should still be available on Amazon just as, just as an anchor. I would recommend that. I, I think it would be a mistake to ignore Amazon's power, but that doesn't mean you have to completely succumb to it either. And you can empower yourself and do so many other explore other ways of, of distributing your book. Okay. If I have to be on Amazon, how do I become an Amazon bestseller? So an Amazon bestseller. So this is one of those things. We offer bestseller campaigns. We do them very successfully, but we're also really transparent. For us, a bestseller campaign, the primary objective is to increase awareness of your book. Because every time you launch a book, you always have that family and friends honeymoon period where everyone you've ever known is buying your copy, even if they're not your target audience, even if they don't know anyone who's your target audience, but they're buying the book as a gesture of support. And you're all excited. Look at this every week. I'm getting more book sales, but your network is an infinite. So at some point, those sales are going to halt. And it's all about discoverability, as we call it. How is your book discovered? And there are so many different marketing tools nowadays, and plenty of them are good and legitimate. What I find works well with a bestseller campaign is it's a way of making your book known to plenty of authors. So what we do is we really leverage the ebook primarily. And what we do is we do, we have certain tools that allow us to do a deep audit of specific niche categories on Amazon because there are a lot of cat book categories on Amazon. It's not just thriller or organized crime or romance or fantasy. You can dive so deep into specific categories. But what's nice about assigning these additional niche categories is that there's less competition. And so that is one big thing. And that's what helps you rank higher in those given categories. But more than that, what we also do is we leverage high traffic mailing lists in which we promote the ebook. And as a result, you get a nice concentration of ebook downloads. And I mean, we've seen authors get thousands of downloads. And that to me is so much more powerful than scoring number one in 10 categories. Because really, unless you're a high 
profile author, maintaining those rankings is difficult. But now your ebook is on the reading devices of hundreds, if not thousands of people. So that is so much power, more powerful. And that is what has so much more potential in the long run. So we actually recommend doing several bestseller campaigns, not so much for the ranking, but just for discoverability. Okay. Storing all this information. Yeah, they're storing all. <laughs> and you can always call me up, Agnes, or send me an email and I'm happy to dissect it further with you. But yes, it's a very legitimate thing. It's not as big a deal to call yourself an Amazon bestseller. When I hear people say, I'm an Amazon bestseller. I want to put this badge everywhere on my website. I think, you know what? That's, that's hype. Don't fall for the hype. You know, what's really important here is all the people who have your book. That's what's important. Well, and I think too, what I've heard people say is like authors say is, oh, I was, you know, number one or number three in that uh, category right. within the first week. Right. Well, except yes. by week four, what's what's going on? <laughs> of course, exactly. And we are never, ever, we never hide that reality from authors. And that's why we always emphasize, yes, the ranking is great. It's nice to say you hit number one. And that's certainly not something to be undermined. But just think about all the people who now have your book. But there again, you have to be patient because how many people load? I mean, I still have books on my shelf that I haven't gotten around to reading. So it's important to it's important to, you know, to keep in mind human nature and we're all people. And just because somebody has downloaded your ebook, it doesn't necessarily mean it's going to be the next on their to read list. So this is why you have to be patient. And this is why it's also strategic to have more than one stack the campaigns one every quarter. And then little by little, that word of mouth can start generating some real results because ultimately word of mouth is still the most powerful tool. Yeah, it's interesting how much of this is hitting home just in terms of, you know, you say like every quarter have another campaign because mm -hmm. a number of times I've heard about a book and I thought, I, I, I want it, but you know, I've got these other three books that I want to get read mm -hmm. first, but by the time I've got them read, I've forgotten about that other yeah. book. Whereas right. if it appears in my inbox or wherever comes on my right. radar three, right. four months later, it's like, mm -hmm. oh, right. I wanted to get that. And exactly. suddenly it's at the top of the reading list. Exactly. Well, it's sort of like in the old world of advertising, right? Isn't it something like people have to see an ad seven times before they'll actually take action. So there is something to be said for regularly reminding people about your title. And that's why being in it for the long haul is so critical. Don't get discouraged if you haven't hit your, you know, don't be discouraged. I mean, really, sometimes you just have to realize you're not the only author clamoring for readers' attention. And just you have to be in it for the long haul. You really do. All right. Is there anything I haven't asked you? You've actually asked a lot of questions about publishing and writing. I mean, I there are so much that we discuss, but I think it's all it's all really useful information. And I always tell authors, writers, if you have questions, email me. I'm always happy to talk to writers, even if we don't work together. It's just fun. I, I really feel a kinship with writers. So people can always email me and ask me to expand on anything we discussed. Well, it's funny because you can always tell where my passions are. I mean, I'm really interested in all my guests. But yeah. Suddenly, 
the episodes get really long when this is something I really want to know. <laughs> That's all good. It was, it yeah. went by really fast. I actually can't believe it's already, it's been, it's gone really fast. So that, that's a good sign. <laughs> that's great. So tell us about Axel Author Services. Author, yes, so ab absolutely. So we are an author services agency. We offer a one-stop shop solution for any author who wants to publish themselves, but they also want to enjoy the support of a team of experts. So we can help with anything from manuscript, developmental editing, through to book marketing, and we customize. So every author comes to us with different needs, different objectives. So we always customize our solutions for them. And if they want more information, they can always consult our website, www.axelauthorservices.com. And Axel is two A's, X-E-L, like Lewis, authorservices.com. Or email me. My name is Alexa, and my email address is alexa at axelauthorservices.com. One question just about your services. You mentioned earlier that sometimes you just know because of your experience someone's sitting on the fence right do you ever flatly refuse like it's I just not gonna work yeah absolutely I've I've I have never I've never rudely refused but when I have sensed that someone is on the fence I like I said earlier in the in the episode I said honestly take some more time you're going to feel better whatever decision you make in the end you're going to feel better about because you made that decision so yes if i feel that somebody is is on the fence i will definitely tell them take some more time because i it's almost like it's almost like any kind of friendship or relationship if you force something nobody's going to have fun in the end so it's really really important that somebody that an author comes to us really ready and excited about what they're about to embark upon it's really important so yes we will tell them take some more time to think about it okay so i'm just looking at my other monitor here so it's double <laughs> a axel author services.com that is and, correct and you're on social yes absolutely you can check us out on facebook and, uh, and also, if you go on our website, you can also sign up for our mailing list. We like to send little tidbits of helpful information and we have blog posts up there as well. So we're here and ready to talk to, to talk to writers. <laughs> okay. And I will mention to our listeners that I did browse your blog and okay. I really had to rein myself in not to read all of your articles in one sitting. <laughs> That's good. There's topics there that, well, like Ingram Spark, I didn't even know they were a thing. Yeah, so there you go. Great. <laughs> okay, the website link is in the show notes. All the links will be part of your bio on the website. Listeners, if you have thoughts on today's show, please talk to us. Leave comments where you're listening, or if you're listening at the Boomer Woman's podcast at boomwithabang.com, scroll to the bottom of the page and talk to us there. Leave stars and reviews where you can. They help us grow. Share this episode with some friends. I know several people who have already written the book. Many other people I know want to. Your friends are probably the same. And now we have a go-to expert to help us launch. <laughs> <laughs> Alexa Nazaro, thank you for being my guest today. Thank you so much for having me, Agnes. It was a lot of fun. It was fun. And thank you for all that information. You're very welcome. Have a great rest of week. You too.